0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 7, Hosea, Historical Reflections and the New Testament Use of the Book of Hosea. This is now our third lecture on the book of Hosea. We've introduced the book, and we've looked at the first two major sections of the book. Now we're going to look at the last major section of the book and then how the book of Hosea is actually used by the New Testament. So let's look first at the section that we have called historical reflections. Romans number one, letter A, what's the basic idea here as we think about the organization of these materials? Figure seven one, illustrates how the second and third sections of the book of Hosea relate to each other. In chapters 4 through 9, as we saw in our last lecture, we have a series of announcements of judgment that Hosea made against Israel especially, a few words about Judah as well, where he had lawsuits that built the case, a call to war, a call to mourning, and these were his announcements of judgment and how bad things were going to be, and indeed those things came about in 734 and then again in 722 with the utter destruction of Samaria. Now we come to chapters 9 through 4, 10 through 14.8 and these are a collection of oracles that are connected with historical reflections. As you read through this section of the book of Hosea you discover a series of similar structures and the, the similar structure can be found in figure 7.2 7.2 Hosea makes reference to God's care of Israel in the past and it's on the basis of that care of Israel that words of judgment, defeat, and exile and then again some words of salvation, restoration from exile are based. So in these materials chapters 9, 10 through fourteen, eight, the characteristic is Hosea looking to the past and on the basis of the past, making predictions about what the future will be. The literary structure, Roman numeral 1b, the literary structure of this material is best organized, in my opinion, around certain metaphors that are used or certain similes that are used in these chapters. You'll see in figure 7.3 that the literary structure follows this series of four metaphors or similes. First. It is that Israel in the past was like grapes and figs. And then chapter ten one, that Israel in the past was like a spreading vine, and then ten eleven, that Israel was like a trained heifer. And then chapter eleven through fourteen, Israel is like a growing child. And it's at each one of these junctures that we find the metaphor helps us understand what's going on in each of these sections. For example, 910 says When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Then chapter 10 and verse 1, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. And so on these various sections go that give us a sense that what's happening here that makes these oracles distinct from the previous section is that Hosea built on a particular analogy, a metaphor, or a simile, and oriented his oracles around those comparisons. Now it does help, as we've done before, from number 1, letter C, to think in terms of the historical conditions that surrounded these various oracles. And I've outlined this on 7.4, figure 7.4, to give you just some suggestions for what might be going on here. I suggest, for instance, that the first section on grapes and figs was probably given near to 7.22 because the fall of Samaria is fully expected, 9.13, and the prophetic word has already been rejected, and also that the exile is imminent, according to 9.15. I also suggest that the second, the second section, 10, chapter 10, 1 through 10, is near um, 7.22, uh, where the cult is flourishing at the time, as it did in the days of quiet during Hosea's de- reign you can look at chapter 10:5 and 8 to see that. The trained heifer is also near 722 probably. There's a king in power, but the king is soon to be destroyed. And then finally the growing child metaphor is probably near 722 as well because the cult is flourishing, but it's near the end 11:6, perhaps as it was in the days of Hosea. If these dates are correct, we see a general progress in the book that the book does begin with the earlier prophecies of Hosea, and then moves to the period of the Syro-Ephraimite coalition and then toward the end of this book moves directly to the 722 arena where Samaria was destroyed. It will help us to pause at each step along the way here and reflect on what goes on in each of these major sections. So we've come to Roman numeral 1D, the original meaning of these sections. Looking at figure 7.5, let's just talk about what happens in this section that deals with Israel as grapes and figs. It's a judgment oracle, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And chapter 9, verse 10, begins with the accusation that Israel was once beautiful, but now she's become vile. And the sentence that's offered or given to her is that the glory of Israel is, will be gone, that there will be infertility, that she will be divorced by God, and that exile will take place. Verse 17 of chapter nine, my God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Then we come to the second large section of this material, verse chapter 10, verses one through 10, the spreading vine analogy. Here we have three series, a series of three judgment oracles, verses one through three of chapter 10, where the accusation is that prosperity in Israel led to syncretism. Look at chapter 10, verse one. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful. Now they must bear their guilt. And what's the sentencing? That the altars will be destroyed and that the king will be removed. Then chapter 10, verses 4 through 8, Israel is accused of making false oaths and promises. The cult is destroyed; will be destroyed, and exile and despair will come. That's the sentence. Chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, sin is mentioned in ch- verse 9, and that bondage is coming upon the nation of Israel. So we see a series of three uh, rather quick or brief judgment oracles. This brings us then to the third major section, and that is the trained heifer analogy. It's important for us to pause for just a moment and look at chapter 10, verse 11. As I mentioned in figure 7.7, verse 11 should probably be translated in the habitual past, um, rather than as the NIV has translated it. Here, she, here the NIV says, Israel is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, so I will put a yoke on her fair neck, and I will drive Ephraim away. What I, sugge- what I would suggest is that we read these as past habituals, that Ephraim had been, has been a trained heifer. I- Israel loved to thresh, and so I will put a yoke on her neck, and I will drive her away. So we have this kind of possibility, and I would suggest that that's probably the case right here, going along with the other analogies in previous sections. The sentence will be devastation and destruction. The last metaphor, that of the growing child, extends and covers a great deal of material here from chapter 11 through 14.8. And as you see in figure 7.8, there is a series of judgment oracles and a few salvation oracles that come. The judgments, 11.1 through 7, Israel is in rebellion. She worships the Baal, what will be the Reward it will be destruction and frustration Chapter 11 verses 8 through 11 God is determined That he will restore Israel even though he's going to send her into judgment Into exile chapter 11 verses 9 through 11 makes this very clear I will not carry out my fierce anger nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim for I am God and not a man the Holy One among you I will not come in wrath they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. And this, of course, is talking about the restoration. As verse 8, the very famous verse, how can I give you up, Ephraim? Can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admah? How can I make you like Zeboim? Then you have another series of judgment oracles where in chapter 11 and 12 where the people are accused of being unfaithful and violent and thus they will live in tents. That is, they'll be cast out of their cities and their cities will be destroyed. There's false religion and the rejection of prophet, and the sentence will be that they will have bloodshed in Israel. Then we go to chapter 13. The accusation is that they worship the Baals and idols and the sentence is total destruction. Then in chapter thirteen four 4 through 14, there's a mixing of salvation and judgment together. The accusation is that they forget God's blessing, and so there's going to be destruction. But there will also be rescuing from the grave, but captivity and destruction. And then finally, there's a call to repentance at the end of this long series, chapter 14, 1 through 8, where the people are called to repent of their idolatry and to seek God. And if they do this, there will be healing, loving, relationship between them and God, and there will be flourishing. You'll take a look at chapter 14, verse 4, and we can see what God promises them, if they will turn in fidelity. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. It will be like the dew to Israel, and he will blossom like a lily, like the cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots, his young shoots will grow, his splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade, he will flourish like the grain, he will blossom like a vine, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon." So we have then this third major section of the book of Hosea all the way up through chapter 14 verse 8. Now this brings us then to the New Testament use of Hosea and We need to pause for a moment and understand how important it is for us to get a picture of how the New Testament uses Hosea. So what's the basic idea of Roman numeral two, letter A? Figure 7.9 gives us the idea here that we have the book of Hosea and what we're interested in doing is looking at the New Testament elaborations on Hosea. How, How did the New Testament use Hosea? And from that example, we can see how we can use the book of Hosea in the Church of Christ today. Figure 7.10 gives us one of the ways in which Hosea is used by the New Testament, and that is for moral guidance, Roman numeral two, letter B. For example, Hosea 6.6 tells that God wanted mercy, not hypocritical worship from Israel. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 Reads this: for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgment from God, rather than burnt offerings and these are fami- this is a familiar verse because it's used in Matthew nine and in Mar- and twelve and then Mark twelve again, and Jesus uses basically this moral principle that God wanted mercy, not hypocritical worship from Israel. Something very similar to this happens in chapter ten, verse twelve which is used by the New Testament in the Septuagint form. There, God says that sowing righteousness will be a blessing for Israel. And Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians 9 to say that sowing righteousness will be a blessing for the church. Once again, a moral principle. There's nothing predictive about these these two passages. They are simply moral principles. Chapter, Chapter 12, verse 8, Israel boasts falsely in her own pride and in her own accomplishments. Israel boasts, it says, I am very rich, I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will, not find, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. And this is used by the book of Revelation chapter 3 to speak of the Laodiceans boasting falsely. Then in chapter 14 and verse 12, verse 2 rather, uh, we have the words of Hosea where he gives a description of the proper worship that Israel will have in the future. Take the words with you and return to the Lord and say, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And Hebrews thirteen verse fifteen describes worship in the church of Christ as the fruit or the sacrifice of the lips. Chapter fourteen verse nine warns that we that Israel is to follow God's ways because they are right. And Acts thirteen ten is an allusion to Hosea 14.9, where the exhortation to follow God's ways is given once again. And the reason that that should be done is because God's ways are right. What we discover from this series of New Testament elaborations on the book of Hosea is that this book is often used as a moral guide for New Testament believers. And this, of course, tells us that one of the ways in which we can use the book of Hosea is to find the moral principles of justice, of righteousness, of sin, and these kinds of things, and use them as models for ourselves today for moral guidance. But there's another way in which the book of Hosea is used by the New Testament, and that is seen in figure 7.11, 7.11, apply to analogous events in the present day of the New Testament. Analogous events, not so much moral principles involved those are though these are not completely separated, but analogies is what's important here, for example, in chapter one, Hosea's children are named as symbols of exile and restoration, and interestingly enough, peter and in chapter first Peter chapter two, and then again Paul in Romans chapter nine, applies these names, not a pe- not my people, to my people, for example applies these names by analogy to Gentiles being accepted into the covenant. It's very interesting that the way Hosea speaks of the restoration of Israel, those who are not my people become my people. Peter then says that this is analogous to the way Gentiles come into the church. They are not my people but they will become my people. Not a moral principle so much as an analogy. In chapter 9 verse 7, we find that the fall of Samaria is seen as God's judgment coming upon apostate Israel, and that this judgment is coming soon. The days of punishment are coming, the days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many, your hostility is so great. The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man a maniac. Well, Jesus used these words, used this kind of language, when he said that Jerusalem. Will be punished in luke 21:22 like Samaria was punished, but Jerusalem, of course, will be punished in 70 AD after his lifetime. It's not to say then that Hosea 9 verse seven refers directly to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. It's simply to say that Jesus is using the analogy between 70 AD and the destruction of Samaria in chapter nine verse seven of Hosea. Chapter 10. In verse 8 of the book of Hosea, the high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. In the original setting of Hosea, this is talking about the destruction of Samaria. And it will be so dreadful, um, Hosea says, that the people will call on the mountains to destroy them. Well, the book of Luke and chapter 23 and then the book of Revelation is chapter 6 and 9, verse 6, uses this language of Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, that referred to Samaria to speak of the second coming of Christ and to the fall of Jerusalem. And this is the kind of language that's used by analogy to these situations. Christians often make the mistake of thinking that because the New Testament uses these verses, to refer to something like 70 A.D. or to the Second Coming, that that is what Hosea had in mind. and It is not what Hosea had in mind. If you take a look at the context of Hosea 10 verse 8, he's talking about the destruction of Samaria which took place around 722 B.C. So then what is Jesus and what's the book of Revelation doing? Well, they are using this event, the destruction of Samaria, as an analogy for the kind of destruction that will come Later on, after the life of Jesus, and then at the second coming of Jesus. Chapter eleven, verse one, is a record of God having called Israel from Egypt. It is not a prediction at all. Not not in the slightest is it a prediction of what will take place for Israel. It is instead a statement of what had already taken place in Israel. Take a look at verse two of chapter eleven. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the baals and they burnt incense to images. So on it goes. So in Matthew chapter two, verse fifteen, where Matthew says this is to be, this is in fulfillment of what Hosea said, "From Egypt did I call my son." And then he says that this refers to uh, Jesus having gone down into Egypt and coming out of Egypt as a child. Matthew is not saying that this is a prediction in Hosea that is fulfilled in some predictive sense in the life of Jesus. Instead. Matthew saw Jesus' identification with God's people as he migrated from Egypt back to the Holy Land. He saw this as anticipated in the words of Hosea by analogy. In other words, what God had done for Israel in the past, he was now doing again through the head of Israel, even the great Messiah. We come now to figure 7.12 where we find the influence, the significant influence of historical contingencies. You'll remember in an earlier lecture we spoke of how events that intervene between the prediction of an event and then the fulfillment of that prediction, that events that come between those two often have a great effect on the way in which the prediction will come about. And this is certainly true when we read passages in the Old Testament prophets, and then we find how they are used in the New Testament. They are references not simply to the way in which the prophet predicted something, but the prediction seen in the light of the intervening historical contingencies of the first the rejection of Israel and during the intertestamental period, and then the coming of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus and the things that he told us about how the kingdom of God was going to unfold. Well, in chapter 13 and verse 14 we read these words, I will ransom them from the from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Now this, of course, is talking about the restoration from exile. It's not talking about the resurrection of the dead in the original context as we think of it very often having read the New Testament. Instead, it's talking about the nation of Israel coming back from exile. And Hosea concludes now the very famous words, Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Of course, we know that this kind of language is used in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, referring to Jesus' resurrection as victory over the grave. Well, Does that mean that Hosea was predicting the resurrection of Christ per se when he uttered these words in Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14? I think the answer to that is no. The original meaning of this passage had to do with the return of Israel from her exile. But now, knowing that Jesus has come and that Jesus has been resurrected, we know as Christians that this hope of restoration that Hosea offered to the nation of Israel was fulfilled only through the death and resurrection of Christ himself. And that's why Paul can take this restoration prophecy and apply it to the resurrection of Christ. And so, figure 7.13, when we think of looking at the book of Hosea, we can take the New Testament's use of this book, its reliance on Hosea as for moral guidance, its use of analogies between Hosea's situation and ours, and then the recognition of historical contingencies that have taken place between Hosea's day and ours. These are the kinds of things that we may do legitimately with the book of Hosea. So we come to the end of this lecture, and that's the appropriational model, figure 7.14. We've seen basically two things in this uh, material here. First, the section on historical reflections, and the original meaning for that, of course, was that Judah should learn that past past blessings are no no protection against the curses. And, of course, the New Testament elaborates on this as well, that the church should learn that past blessings do not necessarily protect against curses and that believers today should not look to the past as a license for sin today. I'm afraid that this is often the case that the church looks to the past and says, well, we've done so much for God and God has blessed us so much in the past, we don't need to worry about anything with regard to the future. But the reality is is that the blessings of the past are good for us only if we use them for good. If we do like Israel had done and take the blessings of God and turn them to evil, then we will find ourselves under the judgment of God. Now, the, the New Testament elaborations, as we've already seen also, the New Testament tells us that the church must apply Hosea as a moral guide by analogy and with historical contingencies in mind. And so as believers today, we must look to Hosea for this moral guidance, for analogies for our lives, and for fulfillment through historical contingencies, even in our own lives today, and of course, ultimately, in the second coming of Christ. So we've come to the end of our lectures on the book of Hosea. We've seen that the book of Hosea, while while Hosea prophesied up through the days of Hezekiah, we know also that this book itself was not compiled until at least the days of Hezekiah. And so we see that Hosea ministered in the north, but wrote his book for the south. And the purpose of the book was that Judah might learn from the experience of the north and the destruction of the north in 722 especially, what sorts of things lay ahead for her if she did not turn from her sins and to fidelity to Yahweh? As we think about this book of Hosea as the Christian church, we have to remember that we stand in a similar position. We are now looking back not only on Israel's destruction in 722, but we are also looking at Jerusalem's destruction in 586. And not only the destruction in 586, but we are also looking at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the ultimate rejection of the city of David. And we Gentiles must not take this as a license for sin, but we should look now at the example of Israel and Judah and realize that, as Romans 11 tells us, if the natural branches were cut off because of sin, how can we unnatural branches, that is the Gentiles, expect to remain on the tree if we turn away from Christ. But let's not forget that the book of Hosea always adds the word of salvation and hope, and that is that God will never utterly reject his people. And so it is that as Christians today, we hold out hope for the people of God who are even the physical seed of Abraham, that if they will believe in the gospel of Jesus, they can be saved. And we hold out the hope to our fellow Gentiles that if they will believe in Christ, come to the Messiah, they too can experience the salvation that will ultimately come when Jesus returns and brings us into a new heavens and new earth. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated, in part or in whole, for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.